heard was an interview Hanan Awad conducted with Marwa Tibi, an independent filmmaker who produces and directs documentaries in Palestine. It is part of Arab Voices Nakba 75 special episodes as we commemorate the 75th anniversary of the ongoing Palestinian Nakba or catastrophe. I'd like to thank Hanan Awad very much for her great contributions to Arab Voices with these special Nakba 75 special episodes. You've been listening to Arab Voices, originating on KPFT Houston and syndicated on other radio stations in different cities in the U.S. and Europe. Our shows are archived online and you can listen to them by visiting arabvoices.net. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. I'm Jill Fritz with the Humane Society of the United States, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Voices for the Animals. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola. We have a very full show for you today, which includes a conversation with Courtney Scott, elephant consultant for In Defense of Animals. She's going to be talking with us about their latest list of the 10 worst zoos for elephants and why for the 12th year in a row, our own Oregon Zoo is at the top of that list. But first, there's some good news in the animal world. Listen to this. That is the sound of orcas in the wild calling to each other. And it's a sound that Tokite, an orca who has been in captivity performing at the Miami Seaquarium for over 50 years, has never really heard since she was four years old. But hopefully very soon, Tokate, also known by her stage name of Lolita at the Miami Seaquarium, will be hearing the sound of other whales calling to her, maybe even her own family, once again. Back in 2020, I spoke with a representative from the Earth Law Center about the continuing efforts to free Lolita, known as Tokate, like I said, or Skalichoktana. That is actually the name given to her by the Lummi Nation, who has been part of the effort to free her. Finally, the Sequarium has retired Toki and agreed to release her to live her life out, if possible, in her home waters of the Salish Sea in Puget Sound off the coast of Washington State. To talk to us about Toki's past and her future, I am thrilled to have Howard Garrett of the Orca Network with us. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Before we talk about the specific plans for Toki's release, can you tell me a little bit about your organization and what the Orca Network's role is in Toki's care and release? Sure. Well, we actually started in 1995 for Toki. It was a, an organization uh, named the Tokite Foundation because we wanted it to uh, reflect to, to her because that was the whole cause, was bringing her back. 
Um, and since then, we have branched out and grown into a sighting network and a stranding network and an education department and a, a storefront gallery and shop in Langley. Uh, so we've gone in many directions, but we've never lost our focus on bringing Toki home. So tell us a little bit about the circumstances of Toki's capture back in 1970. I, uh, you know, I know this story, but for the people who are not familiar, if you could, if you could talk a little bit about what happened then. Well, this was uh, during the heyday, the big kind of gold rush of capturing orcas to sell all over the world. They went to Europe and Asia and South America, and they were all captured. Uh, until 1976, right here in Puget Sound, right around uh, Seattle to San Juan Islands. Uh, this was between 1965 and uh, 76. And right in the middle of that uh, whale rush, you could say, was the capture in Penn Cove, the infamous capture, the largest roundup of them all. When We don't know the number because that was before any field work had been done but uh, about probably a hundred workers were herded with, you know, ear-splitting explosions into uh, Penn Cove, a sort of a you know a dead-end cul-de-sac, and netted off. And over the course of about two weeks, corrals were built, and they systematically took all the young ones, all that they could get their uh, nooses around and hauled them by flatbed truck uh, down to Seattle and uh, arranged for the transport and, and sale of all of them around the world. And Toki was one of those, and a veterinarian from Miami Seaquarium was sent out to choose an orca. Uh, this was Dr. Jesse White, mm-hmm. and he kind of was smitten by her. Uh, he, he saw in her right away her amazing qualities. He said uh, to the media, he said, she is so courageous and yet so gentle. And I think that really uh, is true to this day. Mm-hmm. He took good care of her. He named her Tokite, in fact, which ties her to the Northwest because that's a Chinook Indian trading term, you know, that uh, was a greeting on the trail. So she was traumatized and wouldn't eat and wouldn't cooperate for several weeks. Then she somehow reconciled that this was the reality. This was the routine. You had to do the tricks to get fed in a timely basis. I mean, but they would deprive food for her to do tricks, and so she understood and um, cooperated. And she's never harmed any trainer or done any real aggressive or hostile act. Uh, she really has maintained that courageous but gentle outlook and, and way of living in those extremely harsh circumstances. You know, since you touched on that, can I ask you to describe a little bit the conditions that she has been living in at the Miami Seaquarium, especially since they retired her? It's been a pretty lonely life, yes? Well, yeah, it really has. It's been up and down. I, I think she got 
pretty good care. Although the you know the tank was only eighty feet across and and uh, thirty five feet uh, wide and. 20 feet deep, and she's more than 20 feet long. So it's not as deep as she is long. Right, all this time. And I don't know what the water quality was or what the care was. Uh, I When Jesse White, the veterinarian, was there, I think she got a lot of you know tender, loving care, really, by the trainers as much as possible. But then the whole regime shifted there in the late 1990s, a whole new crew that was much more harsh. And um, and I think the water quality kind of went downhill, and the whole quality of care did. So for probably 20-some years, she's really lived in pretty bad conditions, and that really got revealed in 2021, uh, it was in August that it became public from an inspection in June 2021 about the uh, the terrible water quality and the rotten fish and the demands that they were making on her. Um, she had an injured jaw, but she still had to do full breaches and all sorts of things that really were, it was a scathing report. And that is just about the last that she was in public view, in fact. Wow. It wasn't announced, but they shut the doors sometime in, I think, uh, October, September, October of 2021, and uh, she hasn't been in public view since then. They didn't announce that until early 2022. And I think it's worth noting here that the report you're referring to was from the USDA, who really is not known for their enforcement of animal welfare laws and regulations, especially when it involves coming down on a business like that. Right, absolutely. And the only reason that they did that inspection was that eight dolphins had died within the previous year and a half. They thought, that's suspicious. And so they did that report and found all those glaring violations. And yeah, so that uh, shows you what she had to put up with all those years. So can you walk us through the steps of the process in getting Toki ready to be moved and acclimated um, to what will be a relatively new environment for her and the transport and so forth? Well, in early 2021, a benefactor in Florida, Pritam Singh, has pledged a uh, million dollars to improve her care. And that meant veterinary visits and, you know, examinations. And it also meant improving the water quality because it had gone so far downhill. The the filter system Mm -hmm. wasn't doing the job. So that was completely replaced and the water was uh, chilled. New chillers were put in to put the water at about 55 degrees, which is not far from the water temperature here in the Salish Sea. And her care was improved. Uh, So that has really helped, and they are beginning the preparation for her to swim into a stretcher, to be lifted out, and, and, you know, it's all by protocol. It's all professional standards. It's been done a hundred times, and there's never been any harm done to any whale. And it'll be a comfortable stretcher, and that'll be lowered into a container that's half full of water, so her weight will be on the water, not the stretcher. And the container container will be driven to an airport, loaded onto a a cargo plane and flown across the country. Then it'll be reversed and she'll go onto a flatbed truck that'll drive onto a barge that'll be towed out to the location and she'll be lowered into her native waters once again. 
Now, as I understand it, when she's lowered back into the Salish Sea, there will be a netted enclosure initially where she'll stay to get acclimated. And then is the plan to release her out into the open ocean to rejoin her pod? Or is the plan that she will stay in that netted enclosure indefinitely? Right. Well, I think all contingencies will have to be considered for whether she'll stay there for the rest of her life in a netted off enclosure or whether at some point she will have regained her her stamina, her cardiovascular and metabolic strength and and the veterinarians will sign off and, and that she will show the body language by sort of orienting to beyond the net, you know. Mm-hmm. She'll show people when when she wants to go exploring. And if she is, uh, you know, fit and, and healthy, uh, they probably will allow it. Uh, you know, I, I don't see any reason not to, and I think she can be kind of convincing. <laughs> She'll let them know when the time comes. And, and Do they have a tentative timeline at this point as far as when she's going to be out of this aquarium, anything like that? No, I wish. There's still the big hurdle of the uh, agency, the National Marine Fisheries Service has to approve because she is listed as an endangered animal and I don't know how long that will take but I know that is well underway that the preparation for that I don't know that there's been any proposal presented yet but the the sort of the the conversations are already going on to approve that and and it will take some conversing because there's a lot of resistance to it uh you know it's going to take a while for everyone to sort of you know arrive at that consensus that, yeah, this will work. There's no real risk. So let's talk a little bit about that resistance. You know, her former trainers and a veterinarian have actually come out and been very vocal about the fact that they think this is a really bad idea. They say that she is too old, that she is not acclimated and won't be able to acclimate to an environment that she hasn't known for over 50 years, that she may have been exposed to diseases that will put the rest of her that's in the wild at risk. Um, what would you say to those objections, and how is the state of her health at this point? Yeah, all of those concerns can be addressed. There's really no no outstanding risk. I mean, yes, uh, the concern about pathogens has to be taken seriously because, of course, we don't want to spread any disease here or have her catch anything, but that can be managed by a good examination, uh, a team of veterinarians. It was done for Keiko, the pre-willy whale, before he went to Iceland. A team of veterinarians examined him and gave him a clean bill of health uh, before he went to Iceland, you know, to make sure, and there was no problem when he went. Uh, and the same should be done for Toki. And the the idea that, that either the transport or the immersion into her native waters would somehow kill her, you know, what are they talking about? There's never been any explanation of what it would be, what, what would be the actual proximate cause of 
that kind of an effect on her because the experience, I mean, Keiko is probably the best example. Right. I was actually going to bring that up. You know, a lot of people see Keiko's release as a cautionary tale that this is a good example of why we shouldn't try to release another long-term captive orca back into home waters because look what happened with Keiko. He didn't acclimate. He was unable to catch his own food. He constantly sought out the companionship of humans, and he was rejected by other orca pods, and ultimately uh, he died. He passed away of pneumonia, and a lot of people say that that experiment was a failure. Is there differences with Toki's situation, and what if some of these same things start to happen with her? Is there a contingency plan? Well, that shows you the degree of misinformation right around to make Keiko's reintroduction, which was successful biologically and health-wise. He did great, and yes, he did catch his own fish. He swam across the Atlantic Ocean, catching his fish the entire way. And his first immersion in the water, he showed how how thrilled he was, how excited. He, He explored every nook and cranny. He completely ignored the humans. He was into the habitat. He was looking everywhere and diving longer than they'd ever seen him dive. He was doing great, you know, biologically, but he never was able to be adopted or or join up with any wild orcas. You know, he would meet up and travel with them a little bit, but then they go their way and he goes his because he wasn't part of their immediate family. And that's what they didn't understand. The project managers didn't know that he needed basically his mother or his immediate family, his siblings, because that's how they live. You know, we know that now, and we knew that then. Project managers didn't understand that, so they didn't do the field work to locate his mother and be able to return him to her, and then it would have been a success. So in Toki's case, we do know that her original pod is still there in Puget Sound, right? And that she still makes the vocalizations that are unique to her pod and that her mother might still be alive. Is that the case? Well, we can't really say that. We haven't seen the DNA evidence. Uh, Toki's DNA has never been released, Mm -hmm. analyzed to this day. So it's it's sort of a speculation, but L25 Ocean Sun, who is believed to be her mother is about 90 years old, estimated to have been born about 1928. So that certainly gives you an indication of what Toki could have in front of her as far as you know her lifespan. And yet the same people who are trying to splash cold water on the whole idea and, and discourage any talk of Toki coming home are saying she's geriatric, that she's very old. And, you know, they they paint this picture of her as being, you know, really decrepit and couldn't possibly survive the journey. And that's just not true at all. She's very healthy. She's a full adult, definitely. But, you know, it's very much equivalent to human years. I've been speaking with Howard Garrett from the Orca Network, talking about the planned release of Tokate the Orca. If you'd like to read more about Toki's story, follow her progress, you can do that by going to orcanetwork.org. I've also posted links to the King 5 YouTube series we mentioned, where you can follow progress of her journey, and also to the Orca Network on the Voices for the Animals page at kboo.fm. You are listening to Voices for the Animals on 90.7 KBOO Portland. Thanks so much for being here. Now, chances are, if you have lived in the Portland area for a while, you've been to the Oregon Zoo here in Washington Park. 
So you might be interested to know that the Oregon Zoo has, for the 12th year in a row, landed at the top spot of the worst zoos for elephants list. To talk to us about why that is, we're joined by Courtney Scott, elephant consultant from In Defense of Animals, which puts out that list every year. Thanks for being here, Courtney. So before we get into specifically what makes the Oregon Zoo such a bad place for elephants, I want to talk a little bit about the problem with keeping these animals in captivity. Why is it especially bad for elephants in particular? The elephants are uniquely unsuited to captivity. Elephants are the largest land mammals on earth, and just by their size alone, they require miles to roam, to live anything like the animal they were born to be. And without that space, they literally suffer physically and mentally. And they even suffer brain damage. Well, and another thing is going to be the climates are so different from what they are habituated to. I mean, here in Oregon and other places where it gets cold, that's really not suitable for most elephants, correct? Correct. They do not belong here. You know, there's an elephant right now in Edmonton Valley Zoo in the northern part of Canada where it gets dirty below. Yeah, not exactly elephant-friendly weather for sure. You know, you're probably very aware of this, but when you talk about a lack of space, the Oregon Zoo did a huge campaign back in 2015 to market their expanded space for the elephants. It's called Elephant Lands. It cost them $50 million. What you're saying is that it's not much of an improvement over what they had before. I mean, that's if you're judging by the behavior of the elephants. I mean, what do you see in them that shows you that they are still under so much stress? Um, just about all of them exhibit some form of stereo, what's called stereotypical behavior. They pace, chinder walks in circles. So you want to look for any kind of repetitive behavior. It's especially um, evident with the elephants, but it's also evident with the polar bears, with the big cats, even the giraffes. All you have to do is watch them for a little while and see how they begin to pace or especially with the, the polar bears, let's just take them. They'll pace back and forth. And the zoo has spent quite a bit of money also on the polar bear exhibit. You know, all you have to do is watch for a few minutes and you'll see their behavior uh, being exemplified. It's just like watching a prisoner in a prison yard. You know, there's really nothing for them to do. They the elephants kind of just sway back and forth a lot, right? And they'll press their heads up against trees and, and so forth. Well, of course, they don't have trees. Oh, that's true. They can't even reach the trees that are uh, surrounding their exhibit, sadly. Right. In fact, a lot of times what you'll see them do is try to push their trunk underneath the fencing to get to some trees or grass, which is just out of their reach. In pictures, you know, all of these zoos on the list look very similar to the Oregon Zoo. Can you tell me, what are the other reasons a zoo lands on this list, and in what way is the Oregon Zoo worse? Why are they at number one on the list? Well, the Oregon Zoo this year, the reason they're number one is from their medical records, we could see how much they're suffering from what's called aggression or bullying. And that is all because they have no space. That's all derived from lack of space. And so, for instance, Chindra has been injured at the feeder because one of the elephants has been pushing her against the feeder. And she's had experiences of being bullied for a number of years. She's a subspecies of an Asian elephant. She's called a Borneo pygmy. So she is not 
the same species, really, as the other Asian elephants. So one of the elephants picks on her. And another elephant, Chine, has been bullied by the male elephant, uh, Samson. The end of her tail was bitten off. These are examples of aggression due to lack of space. Now, the Oregon Zoo, of course, is not the only thing with problems. But this is the first time I've seen it so exaggerated and, and affecting so many different elephants. And the zoo is recklessly still attempting to breed all five elephants. I wanted to talk about that because so many of these zoos, people may not realize, are involved in breeding programs that are very ill-advised. Some of the elephants are too old. Some of the elephants have health issues that make it really problematic for them to breed. Exactly. And also there's a lot of uh, failed breeding. There's quite a few stillbirths, there's quite a few that die at birth, and then there's quite a few that die when they're young, like Lily died when she was six years old from what's called EEHV, it's an elephant herpes virus, and it's very common to zoos. It's a very, very failed breeding program for zoos, and it's because there's not a good environment. And there's not a good gene pool either. That's a factor too, but I mean when you put them under so much stress they're, the, the females are just not able to have a healthy pregnancy. Or a lot of times they don't even go through estrus. So you have to be an estrus in order to get pregnant. Right. And they, they, don't, they don't have normal estrus cycles in the zoo. So here's the other thing about that. When you talk about the breeding program, you know, baby animals are big money for zoos. They attract a lot of people, and uh, that's why they continue with the breeding program, one of the main reasons, of course. Um, One of the saddest things about it is when they do these breeding programs, eventually these babies are often transported to other zoos, right? And that's really uh, psychologically harmful to the elephants. Yes, that's very true. In fact, they have a long history of sending baby elephants at one years old, even one and two years old, many times to the circus. So a lot of these elephants ended up being, you know, subjected to harsh training, which is what happens in a circus. Right. You know, when they were still weaning, they were not even weaned from their mothers. So it's a, it's a cruelty to the baby and it's a cruelty to the mother. You know, one of the things I think people should be aware of is when an elephant dies, the mother suffers the most. A lot of people are sad because of the staff. The staff are sad, but, you know, they're kind of ignoring the fact that the mother... And elephants have very, very strong maternal bonds, so they're used to being together with their family forever until they die. You know, you mentioned the staff a few minutes ago, and I know that when the zoo did the elephant lands enclosure and they did all the big media push, what's interesting is they talked so much about how they really loved their elephants there and they wanted the best for them and so forth. And they did also talk about the captive breeding program and how without it, you know, elephants might go extinct. And and that's a big argument that a lot of people who are pro-zoo make since there is less and less space for them in the wild. How would you answer that? That is just what we call the conservation con at indefensive animals. There is no way that keeping an elephant in captivity is going to do anything to replenish the elephants in the wild. And what is the life of an elephant in a zoo? How does that help preserve them where they should be? All it does is keep a, an elephant captive for their entire life. You know, so what is that? What does that really do? I think. The public and children have been misled by the zoo for many years now, and it's, it's a bogus argument on, on every level. There's just no way they're going to save elephants 
by keeping them in the zoo. All right, so let's say tomorrow that the zoos or even the Oregon zoos said, okay, we are willing to release all of our elephants to sanctuary. Are there enough stateside sanctuaries, good ones and approved ones, to take them and take care of them long term? Because that is an expensive proposition, right? Yes, it is. Well, right now there are three sanctuaries in the U.S., so there are, there is room right now if the zoo was willing to pursue that. So that's, of course, the big question. Right. Even if they don't release them to sanctuary, how do they make things better for the elephants short term? They have to stop the breeding program because otherwise they're just going to perpetuate the problem for all eternity. And they have to stop importing elephants from other facilities. So that would be our number one ask after sending them to sanctuary. And then finally... The answer is to close the elephant exhibit, as 34 zoos have already done. Has there been a response from the Oregon Zoo about the possibility of at least releasing Chendra, let's say, or what has their response been to the pressures to, you know, release at least one elephant to sanctuary? They refuse to do it. Do they say why? Do they think that what they're doing is adequate? Oh, yes, of course. And, you know, part of the reason is they are a part of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and they hold a lot of sway over zoos. If zoos do say they're going to release their elephants, to sanctuary, the AZA will threaten them to take away their accreditation. That's incredible. I had no idea about that. So they are overseen by an organization that actually wants them to perpetuate this suffering. Oh, yes. And they're part of their what they call the Species Protection Plan, the SFP. That's all from the AZA. And that includes a breeding program, right? Yes, that, that is the breeding program. If people want to get involved, what other action can be taken? Is there any legislation on the horizon or what? So one of the things we ask is that they contact Metro, who oversees the zoo, and Metro president's name is Lynn Peterson. They can contact their Metro counselor. That is the best way. And then, you know, of course, they can sign all of our alerts from In Defense of Animals. We have a a Chindra alert, and we have a whole campaign on our website. That was Courtney Scott, elephant consultant for In Defense of Animals. If you'd like to read more about this issue and the problems with keeping elephants in captivity and the efforts of foes to free those elephants or support the amazing work of In Defense of Animals, you can go to ID. AUSA.org or just follow the link on the Voices for the Animals page at KBOO.FM You can also find a podcast of this show there as well. And that will do it for this episode of Voices for the Animals. I'm Michelle Coppola and until next month, be kind to animals to others and most of all to yourself. Good morning and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. KBOO is a volunteer-powered community platform, which means we are funded by you, the listener. 
Today, we reprise Jeff's review of Mishima, and Matthew of Kebu's Gremlin Time takes another look at Run For Your Money. But first, here's a whirlwind tour of a bunch of recent releases on screens big and small. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. Asteroid City is the new and much-anticipated film by Wes Anderson from Focus Features. It's a very Andersonian film, and either you like his stylized and mannered framing and painterly look, or you don't. He hasn't been interested in realism for several films.